The reading today is from John 21, verse 1 to 25 from the ESV. If anyone needs a Bible, they're over on the white little stool over there as well. Jesus appears to seven disciples. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast a net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the, among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the word itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so reads God's word. Welcome to you if you joined us while we were singing and doing kids songs. I love, one of the things I love about City is that we don't take ourselves so, so seriously that the adults can't do the actions. I nailed those actions today. Uh, you're, you are welcome. Uh, that, was, that was great. Uh, if you're new or visiting, you're particularly uh, welcome with us. Can I invite you to uh, look it up on your phone or if you've got a Bible with you to have John 21 in front of you? There's so many wonderful little details uh, in this passage. And so I'm going to be digging in. It'd be good if you kind of had that in front of you on your, uh, on your phone in uh, whatever language works for you. We're using the English standard version of the Bible. If you're on Bible Gateway, you're like, is this the NIV? Is this the King James? It's the English standard version, the ESV, so you can look it up there. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, we've done 47 sermons through the Gospel of John, and this is the last one. We're about to conclude 47 sermons, not all in one go, it has to be said. We've, uh, uh, we've broken up with summertime and things like that, but we have, uh, uh, we're about to conclude this marathon book, and this is where John draws things to a close. If you remember, John begins in a very grand sort of way. He, he starts uh, essentially with eternity in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These grand themes in his prologue of light and darkness, of life and truth and grace, and uh, being made a, a child of God. And he talks about the, the Logos, the Word that becomes flesh, the Logos being that, uh, that divine spark that, uh, that permeates all of creation, that brings all of our reason and rationality and creativity. Uh, to life and how that logos, that word stepped onto the stage of human history. It, it, he begins with ideas so philosophically and theologically and spiritually rich that it's hard to grasp and so much ink has been spilt about what they mean. And, and now John has brought us to the end of that great grand gospel. And the question is, well, how will he conclude if this is where he started? How will he end this grand magnum opus of his work? Will he take us into heaven itself so that we glimpse and hear just for a moment the sound of the seraphs singing, holy, holy, holy. What will he do? Well, what is it John does? How does he wrap up the conclusion with this epic book? He gives us breakfast. I'm not a breakfast person. I don't know if you are. My daughter is. My daughter could eat courses of breakfast. I don't really get that. My son's like me. He's like, no, I just want a cup of coffee. Well, he's four. He doesn't drink a cup of coffee. <laughs> Although looking at him sometimes after the service, you think that's what we were giving him. Maybe you're not a breakfast person like me. If you're not a breakfast person, don't switch off because we need this breakfast. This breakfast is so beautiful. Not because it's fish for breakfast. Fish for breakfast is weird, right? But it is so beautiful for so many other reasons. And if you think about it, it's such a good way to end considering where John started. Because remember, where did John start? John starts 
with all of these grand philosophical, theological, spiritual themes of the word of God made flesh, stepping onto the stage of human history and dwelling among us of the very epitome of life and truth and grace coming to be among us. And he sat down one morning on a beach with his friends who were weary, flawed, and he cooked them breakfast. This is the Christian God. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus here this morning, you're particularly welcome because you're getting a glimpse into, well, what is the, what is the God that Christians proclaim? What's he like? This is the God of the Christian. Awesome in power and glory and love. And he makes you breakfast. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is your God. He loves you in the big things. We're 10 days, two weeks after Good Friday, after the cross and the resurrection, where Jesus defeated sin and death. He loves you in the big things, but he also loves you in the ordinary rhythms of life. He cooks you breakfast. There are two things, two invitations Jesus extends to us this morning from this passage. The first, thing, the first invitation is that he invites us into relationship, into fellowship. So Jesus invites us into relationship. It's the first thing that we're going to look at. The disciples are back uh, north now. They've gone to, to Galilee. That's where they're from. So they're back in their, in their hometowns. They've left Jerusalem and headed back there. Some people think that this is weird. Some people think, well, is this a sign of their... Uh, of their walking away from Jesus. You know, why didn't they you know, hang around in Jerusalem? You know, they've just kind of uh, cleared off home again and, uh, you know, gone back to their, to their normal day jobs. But I don't think that that's what's going on. Mark in his gospel tells us that Jesus instructed them to go back to Galilee and to wait uh, for him there. And so they are being obedient to Jesus, heading off back to where they're from. And very understandably, it's very human. It's very normal. Uh, they occupy themselves rather than just sitting around. They decide to get on doing something and they do the one thing that they know. So Peter, as ever, the, the, the leader, the initiator, he says, I'm going to go fishing. And they all kind of look at one another and go, well, we'll go too, right? We'll head out and uh, we'll, we'll occupy ourselves until, uh, until we hear more from, from Jesus. Normal, ordinary thing to do. And they fish all night, but the fish aren't biting. They catch nothing. Uh, and as day begins to break, they become aware that there is a, there's a figure standing on the shore, they can't quite see him clearly in the, the dawning morning light. And he, he calls out from the shore. They're not far off. And, and so this voice calls out and says, children, do you have any fish? The word for children here is the, it's the word technon. It means kids. It's, hey, kids, any fish? No, we haven't caught anything. The voice calls out again and says, let down again on the, on the right hand side. Let down your net. And so again, in obedience to the voice, they do. And whoosh, the net is full of, as we'll read later, 153 large fish. I don't think there's much significance of 153. There's one possible theory, but I'm not going to go into it now. You can, if you remember, you can ask me about it later. 
And again, the personalities, as we've seen over the, uh, particularly these closing chapters, the personalities of the disciples is coming to the fore again. Uh, John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, when you read the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John talking about himself. That's a little autobiographical detail. So John being kind of slightly more analytical uh, than Peter, uh, he makes the connection first. And he says, it's the Lord. And Peter being Peter, throws himself into the sea, right? So he, and you read this little curious little detail that he, uh, that he puts his clothes on. Um, so he would, have been, he would have been shirtless for work. So he puts his tunic back on uh, and he kind of girds up his loin and it, he uh, bends himself into the sea and he starts swimming. These guys, but just think, if you're one of the disciples, you're there with the nets and you're like, where's, where's he going, right? But he's just blinkers on again, Peter, into the sea, I'm getting to Jesus, right? And so off he goes, leaving the guys behind. Now, pause there. Have you ever considered that your work is a place to encounter Jesus? They're doing what they've been trained to do. They're doing what they know. And Jesus came and met them there. Don't be fooled into the notion that God only meets you in so-called holy spaces. Every space is sanctified. Every moment is holy. Jesus elevates and honors your work. He sees you in your work. And your work is a place to encounter him. Your office is holy ground, your classroom, a place of worship, your cafe is a cathedral, your laundry room is a sanctuary. Whether you're a doctor or an engineer or a stay-at-home mum or even an art student, Jesus honors your labor. Jesus honors your work. Look up, see him at the shore of your labors and have an encounter with him. Sanctify those tedious tasks, dedicate tomorrow's drudgery to him and invite him to meet you in your work. Don't park the spiritual uh, vitality of today. Let it bleed into tomorrow. When you get up and you go into the ordinary rhythms of life, do so with a mindfulness that Jesus stands at the shore. He sees your work and he longs to bless you and meet you in it. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't he want to do that? He's the God of the big things and the small things. If he's the, the God who, uh, who dies for you and who cooks you breakfast, wouldn't he meet you tomorrow morning? And wouldn't it reframe your work if you would look up from your computer screen, from your desk, and, and, and consecrate it in a moment and say, let me see Jesus in the people that I meet. Take this difficult meeting and may it be a, an opportunity for me to grow in grace and patience and love. May this menial task of, uh, of cleaning and of doing dishes and of emptying the dishwasher and of 
hanging up clothes and, uh, and making beds. Be a way that I image and reflect the God who prepared this world that I might live in it and flourish. Jesus honors your work. And we should honor one another's work as a result. The miracle itself, unpause. The miracle itself is presented so tenderly, so wonderfully. Jesus was right when he taught them in chapter 15. Yeah? He taught, in chapter 15, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. One of the things that he says there in John 15, verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's true in this miracle. They, sh- they fish all night. There's nobody biting. And it's not until Jesus comes along that they have this huge catch of large fish. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So they come ashore. And what do they see? Verse 9, the fire's lit and there's fish already on it. Now, don't miss this. This is uh, another one of those glorious, beautiful little details. There's fish already on the fire. Jesus is all about grace. Breakfast is already there. They don't need to bring something to the meal. It's not like, oh, well, I've got no fish, but if you bring some, I'll cook it. No, no. Jesus is all about grace. Jesus feeds them with something that he has already provided. And yet it goes another, it goes another depth down in its, in its wonder and in its beauty. And yet he also graciously invites them to contribute the fish. So verse 9 uh, so there's fish already on the table. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place uh, and fish laid out on it and bread. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. How wonderful is that? That Jesus would also honor their work and say, bring some of your labors and let's enjoy that together. Bring some of the fish that you caught. And they've been laboring all night. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet Jesus is so gracious. He's so loving. He looks and says, you you did that. Hey, kids, you did that. I think that's why he calls them children. Why does he call these grown men children? Well, in part because this is how a good dad acts. I'm not always a good dad. I'm flawed and broken. and, And so I don't, say any of this to, uh, to blow my own horn. Lord knows uh, my own failures and weaknesses. But there are times, you know, I don't need Isla to help me paint the shed. In fact, <laughs> sometimes I really don't need Isla to help me paint the shed. I don't need Owen to help me light the fire of an evening or to bake a cake. But it gives me pleasure to invite them into that process with me, and it gives them joy that they feel used and that they're partnering with dad in this objective. And Jesus is doing that. Bring some of the fish that you caught. Apart from him, they can do nothing. And yet he still says, come on, let's share it. Let's eat together. It's really beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. So they sit on the beach with the word made flesh 
two weeks after his crucifixion, and with nail-pierced hands, he serves them. He serves them again, this time in a much more ordinary way. But again, how extraordinary that the God who would take our sin would also say, let's eat together. In doing this, Jesus not only elevates our work, I think he elevates the normal rhythms of life. I think he makes every meal holy. I think he makes every meal a place of encountering him too. You know, in Christianity, there's only one altar. You know, people sometimes talk about when they walk into kind of old cathedrals and churches, go, that's the, there's the altar. It's not. This altar is a place of sacrifice. There's only one altar in Christianity. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus. In the Christian religion, in the Christian worldview, every altar is turned into a table around which followers of the Lord Jesus dine with each other and dine with the divine as we break bread with his image bearers. And so just as Jesus elevates and sanctifies work, he sanctifies those normal rhythms of, of eating and of sharing fellowship together. Most of us, roughly speaking, eat three times a day. Jesus makes those times, times of meet, for meeting him. And so can I encourage you and invite you to make your, your own table, however big, however cluttered, to make your own table a place of refreshing and encouragement and encounter either for the people in your own home, but, but maybe also for inviting others into it. Let your, let your tables be, be stained with the spaghetti sauce and turmeric yellow of joyous encounter. Let the tears of honest vulnerability fall on those tables. And let Jesus sit there and heal and forgive. Have people round for lunch. Doesn't have to be big. Doesn't have to be fancy. But make your table a place of encountering Jesus. There's an old anonymous poem that I find this week that I really like. It says, come and dine. The master calleth, come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude, turned the water into wine, says to hungry, thirsty sinners, come and dine. You're invited. You're invited to dine at the table of the king, to have fellowship with him. In some, in some cultures, uh, it's assumed that you're, that you're not included not here, not with Christianity. You're invited. The king invites you. Come and dine. That's the first invitation. The second uh, invitation is that Jesus invites us to be renewed. He invites us into fellowship with himself, and he also invites us to be renewed. Sadly, <clears throat> Sometimes the church 
has a tendency to, uh, to shoot its wounded. I'm sorry if you've experienced that. You know, in baseball, I'm reliably informed by Ben uh, that it's three strikes and you're out. Sometimes in the church, it feels like one. We have a tendency to shoot our wounded. But Jesus says in, in John chapter 10 that he came to give life and to give life in all its fullness. If we learn anything from this conversation with Peter, it's this, that life and life in all its fullness is for failures. We, the readers, know that there's a cloud hanging over Peter. The cloud of denial. Jesus, a couple of weeks ago, had been standing there in the courtyard facing trial, and Peter was there warming himself by the fire. And three times he denied him. And Jesus now, in chapter 21, right at the end of the gospel, he addresses that issue. He, kind of, he grasps that nettle, but he does so with, with such gentleness and grace and wisdom. Oftentimes, we seek to actively avoid these conversations. We've been hurt by people. They know that they've hurt us, but we just pretend like everything's okay and, and move on. Have you ever considered that actually the the person who's hurt you needs to know and hear that forgiveness and that restoration? So Jesus enters into this conversation. And again, there are lots of just such wonderful details. First of all, so we're down in verse 15. Have a look at it on your phone with you. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, stop there. When they had finished breakfast. Breakfast with Jesus for Peter was not conditional. Do you see that? It's not like the other, disi- the other disciples, you know, they're walking up the beach, they're, he- they're heading towards the charcoal fire and Jesus uh, sees Peter coming at the end and goes, whoa, hold on. You and me? Before you eat that, we need to have a talk. None of that. And we would do that, wouldn't we? Right, hold on. You don't get to come into my house and start eating my food until we've had a chat. No, breakfast is not conditional. Why? Because Jesus is all about grace. Forgiveness, fellowship, renewal. It's all of his kindness. Pick it up again, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Stop there. Jesus hasn't called Peter, Simon, son of John, since chapter one. Since his original calling. Jesus, in a sense, is taking Peter right back to the start of his journey with Jesus. He's taking him right back to how things began, Simon, son of John, follow me. Since Simon, son of John, he's reminding him of his original calling to be a follower of Jesus. Folks, 
Do some of you here need to remember when Jesus called you first? And the joy of that? And the wonder that was in your heart? To remember those early days when everything seemed so new and fresh and exciting. Jesus takes him back to that original calling, Simon, son of John. Keep going. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus begins with a question, not a lecture. Have you noticed that? Peter knows that he's messed up. Jesus doesn't weigh in with two feet and go, well, yeah, I told you so. And another thing, right? Starts with a question, drawing Peter out. This is like, this is like God in the garden, isn't it? What does God do in the garden of Eden after uh, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, have taken of the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they hide themselves? How does God begin that conversation? Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? God's very good at asking insightful questions. He begins with a question and not a lecture. Now, what does the question mean? It could mean, and I think we instinctively read it this way, as, do you love me more than you love these guys? Uh, Do you love me more than you love these? Uh, Or the one that I think it is, it's, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Or Jesus is asking Peter, is your love better than their love? Is your love better than their love? Now, why is he asking Peter that? Why would Jesus ask that sort of question? And this is important. Because a few weeks ago, in that upper room, with all of the talk of betrayal, Peter had said with great pride and bravado, even if all of these fall away, I will never fall away. I would lay down my life for you. He's looking at these disciples and goes, these guys, these guys suck. But me, I'll be with you till the end. I'll never forsake you. And what happened? Peter's faith that night shatters. His strength utterly fails him. And he denies his Lord not once, but three times. So when Jesus comes and asks this first question, he says, you really love me more than these guys love me? He's asking Peter, do you still believe that your love is purer, stronger, more holy and fervent than theirs? And what's Peter's reply? Peter's reply is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And that's so important because for the first time, Peter's not comparing himself. He's not 
deriving his own value from how better he is, that he is than the other people. He's no longer comparing himself. There's no more bravado. He's just saying, you know that I love you. Gosh, how important that is. Aren't we so given to actually deriving our, part of our identity and our value from how better we are than other people? Or we face the anxiety of these people are better than me. We live in this comparison bubble. This person's more intelligent than I am, more beautiful than I am, more able than I am. What happened to Peter has served to kill that part of him. No longer comparing. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. That's why the second and third questions don't repeat that part. The second and third questions don't have the more than these because Jesus knows in that moment that Peter's a different person. That there's a new humility in Peter. And so there's no need to keep on probing that anymore. But why ask him repeatedly at all? By the third time, Peter, we read his heart is, is grieved. But Jesus knew that Peter needed something. Peter needed to hear himself say, I love you three times, one for each of the, I do not know him. It's like with each beat, with each I love you, one of those denials is covered and dealt with. The forgiveness and the renewal and the restoration matches the sin and covers it entirely so that Peter might know that his sin is fully covered. Peter is renewed and that, that barrier, therefore, between him and his Lord is removed. What a beautiful thing that is. And with that renewal comes two things. First, there's a commissioning. You notice how after each... Uh, Question and answer. Jesus gives a, uh, a statement. He gives a, he gives a command, actually. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Whose sheep are they? They're Jesus's. But he invites Peter to be a shepherd under him. It's a bit like the, come and bring your fish that I helped you catch. With renewal comes a call to serve, to love, to love our fellowship, to tend and care for one another, to nurture and to protect. Yes, there's a sense in which this is a, this lands with a, uh, a kind of particular weight uh, on, on folks in, in my sort of job, right? Uh, because well, well, what does pastor mean? Pastor means shepherd. But it's also true in a sense for, for each of us that we're all called first to be renewed by his grace and then to live and to love one another for Jesus' sake. 
But do not think that that your renewal is just, so I'm renewed, I'm forgiven and restored fellowship with Jesus. So I'll, you know, let, you know, Jesus take the wheel. I'll just sit back, relax. I know you might be in the kind of the premium seats right now, uh, but that's only for the next 15 minutes or so. With your forgiveness, with your restoration, with your renewal comes a commissioning and a call to serve and to love those around you, to nurture and to, uh, and to seek the good of your brothers and sisters. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. But there's not only a commissioning, but also a cost. Verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after he said, uh, after he'd said this to them, he said, follow me. Jesus has forgiven Peter, renewed him, restored him. But that doesn't mean that all will automatically go well in his life. There's a cost to following Jesus. I suspect that many, if not all of you, either know that cost or some of you are experiencing that cost right now. There's a cost to being identified with the Lord Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble, trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so roughly 30 years after this breakfast on the beach, some men in Rome took the nigh 64-year-old Peter to be crucified. And they stretched him out upon that cross. And as they did so, he said, I am not worthy to die in the same way as my Lord. Crucify me upside down. And so they crucified him upside down in Rome as an old man. Following Jesus, having fellowship with him, being renewed by him day after day, moment after moment. It all left Peter utterly changed. And the same will be true for you. Follow him. Peter wonders then what will happen to John. But Jesus' response is good for each one of us to hear. Jesus' response is saying, well, what is it to you? Each one of us has a different journey in following the Son. Some may wear the martyr's crown. Others will have a crown bestowed upon them after a life of long, ordinary obedience in the same direction. Either way, what is your call? Follow him. And so John concludes. And he concludes this epic gospel, this biography of the life of Jesus, with these final words in verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. See, it's a, it's a particular history. It's not an exhaustive one. It's a particular history from a particular vantage point showing you who Jesus is so that you might have life in his name. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. 
I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John concludes with an apparent hyperbole, an exaggeration, but maybe not. Maybe John actually brings us back to where he started. You see, if Jesus is the Word made flesh, the Son of the Father, the pre-existent one, the embodiment of grace and truth, the full and final disclosure of the divine, then John is right to conclude that the whole earth would be an insufficient library to contain the recalling of his majesty. And so John ends where he began, not with a focus on himself or on any of the other disciples, but on the Son, the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, the life, the true vine, the I am. He invites you this morning into fellowship with him and to experience him in every ordinary moment and to have your life renewed and to heed the call to follow him. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. If you found this helpful or want to know more about City Church Dublin, please visit our website found in the link below.